0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Testament, this sets up the framework for everything. Your entire Bible is flowing out of what God communicates to Abram in this passage. So this is a huge passage and we've got to get a hold of this if we're going to make sense of what Christianity is all about and even if we just want to know about world history from a secular perspective this 9 verses changes the ball game changes the world forever i want to give you two layers of context to this message one is talking about the author and the audience this is written by moses under the inspiration of the scripture uh, of the spirit after the people have come out of egypt God's chosen people have come out of Egypt. God has miraculously delivered them with the plagues, and they crossed the Red Sea, and now they're with their God at the Mount of Sinai. And God is now going to tell them and even remind them of their history. And they are the descendants of Abraham. They are the inheritors of this promise that we're going to look at today. The book of Genesis is primarily written, first and foremost, to those Israelites who are now this nation without a land, heading to a place where they... Uh, Believe God has given them. And so they've got to get some orientation in terms of who they are, a little bit of their backstory and what the God that had just delivered them out of Egypt, what he's like, where he's going, what he's been up to and why they're here in the desert. And so this book of Genesis is the backstory to that. And it's primarily for them to get a sense of who they are and where God is taking them. And uh, this passage would be massively important to them as they understand that they are the carriers of the promise. They are the recipients and the stewards of the promise that God gave to Abraham here in chapter 12. Context number two is really following the flow of the story, is that we've had creation, fall, and now we're seeing the effects of the fall. Um, As God's good creation, those that were made in his image rebelled against him, and everything became corrupted and broken, and everything received a dense death sentence under God and are under his judgment for their corruption for their sin and we see that that come to fruition in the flood narrative where the thoughts of all people are always evil continually to where god decides to send his judgment and cleanse the earth and essentially start over with a new adam named noah and uh, and his family and he's going to carry on his redemptive work through this one family and then Instead of scattering like they should and and filling the earth with the image of God and the glory and worship of God, they decide that they're going to build a tower to rival God. They're going to combine all of their human ingenuity in order to defy God to disobey God and so God confuses their language in Genesis chapter 11 and then disperses them himself and so now what we have is we have peoples that are have different languages and live in different places and there's rivalries between these peoples and there's cultural differences between peoples and in some sense that's a judgment of God that he has scattered the people that he has judged them that in their rebellion he is going to spread out the rebellion so to speak so that they are not united in rebellion, but separated. And so these nations are kind of a form of judgment, really, on the people. And so coming right out of that, then, we begin to wonder, well, if God has so kind of fractured humanity and placed them all over, how is he going to keep his promise to redeem them? And that's where Abram comes in. That while they're scattered as nations as a form of judgment, he's going to call one to be a blessing to the nations, So the judgment of scattering the nations, separating the people is not the final word. Yes, it's a judgment. Yes, it's going to last for a long time, but God is going to draw it all back together, and He pours out all of this promise on one man named Abram. So that's our context there is that we've got the author and the audience and what is being communicated, but then we also in the flow of the story, this is where we're at. So I want to answer four questions in our message today. Four questions. First two will be easy. Second two will take a little bit of time. First one is, who is Abram? So we're just going to ask that. Who is this guy? And uh, we'll talk about that. Why does God pick him? Why of all the people does he decide to go, this guy is my guy? What does God promise? That'll be in verses 1 through 3. And then how does Abram respond in verses 4 through 9? Okay, so we're going to answer those four questions in our time together here. So let's start with question number one. Bree's already read the text, so you kind of already got that in your mind. God encounters this man named Abram. So who is Abram? Very simply, he's a descendant of Shem. He's a descendant of Shem. So Noah and his family are the only ones on the earth. As they come out of the ark, after the judgment of the flood, they come out. They're it. They're the human race. And uh, Noah has three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And uh, let's actually back up just a bit. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, when God is pouring out the curses uh, for the rebellion at the Garden of Eden, God puts this promise, we looked at this last week, this promise that he's not giving up, he's going to redeem. It says Genesis 3.15, as he's condemning the serpent, uh, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So there's going to be war. There's going to be a war between good and evil. There's going to be a war against those who follow the rebellion of Satan and the serpent. And there's going to be against those who follow the woman and are faithful. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what we've seen is that God, throughout the narrative, is using this Toledot, this Generations, in order for us to trace the promise that it's going to come through genealogy. It's going to come through human beings having children that God is going to bring his promise to crush the head of the serpent, to reverse the curse through an offspring. So we have these generations. You wonder why there's so many genealogies in the book of Genesis. It's because God is wanting us to trace his promise from generation to generation. And he gives these indicators at times that when the family tree forks, he's saying, watch this line. My promise is not going to go this way, it's going to go this way. And he gives these indicators on where the promise is going to go as the human race progresses through time. And so God is writing his redemption story on human beings and generations and this principle in Hebrew called Toledot, the generations of it. And there's several places where he points out, my promise is going to go through this line, through this branch of the human family tree. And so that's what we're watching as we go through Genesis and actually through the whole Bible. Is watching this promise of when is this promised offspring going to come. And I'll show you where it comes in just a little bit. So as we watch this story unfold of the human race, we get to Genesis 9, 25 and 26. And what happens is is that Noah and his family has come out. The promise has got to be in one of these three sons here, right? And God's going to point out which one is going to be the one who carries on this promise of redemption. The one that we're supposed to be watching his family to see what happens. So there's this weird incident where Ham dishonors his father and Shem and Japheth cover up their father and then their father, angry and I think inspired by God, issues both a curse and a blessing in Genesis nine twenty-five through 26, where he says this, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan. So the curse of the serpent is being identified with Canaan. So the descendants of Cain, Canaan, are going to be the ones that we should watch as being particularly picturing the rebellion of the serpent. They're the ones that are going to be most at war with the people of God, the Canaanites. You're going to hear that come up quite a bit as you continue to read your Bible, that the Canaanites sort of embody this rebellious disposition before God. So that's the seed of the serpent is going to be particularly illustrated in the Canaanites. So that's one. And then Noah continues to give this prophecy which shows us how to watch the offspring, his offspring, and and how they're going to divide into these two ways. One is he says, verse 26, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So I want Shem to be the prominent one. He's going to defeat the Canaanites, the descendants of Shem. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So if we see that through tracing the promise of Genesis 3.17, We should be keeping our eyes on Shem. The promise is going to go through Shem. The seed crusher, or the serpent crusher, is going to come through Shem. Watch him. And also watch the line of Canaan, because they're going to be particularly illustrative of the seed of the serpent. We're going to see the enmity between those two being played out. In particular, they're going to be on the center stage of illustrating god's plan and god's purposes and god's promise and the resistance that's going to come to that and the way that it's going to be threatened okay so that's the clear road sign this is the direction this is the fork in the road walked shem so you, you sometimes hear people talk about the semites right that comes from this word anti-semitic is to be against the descendants of shem so the semitic people come from shem all right so then that brings us to chapter 11 verse 10 if you look at that in your bible These are the generations of Shem. So now the story resumes after the Tower of Babel, and God's like, remember, I want you to watch the descendants of Shem. And so then he begins to trace it, and you get this genealogy that lists a number of names, and it's showing you where to trace this promise of redemption. And then it lands in verses 27 through 32. It says, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Lot's going to play a part of the story here for the next few chapters. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. So that means that Lot's dad is dead. So one of the other brothers is going to take him, which is going to be Abram. Abram's going to look out for his dead brother's child, Lot. That's going to be important down the line. Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. That's significant. If this promise is going to go through these, well, one brother's dead, right? He's got a son named Lot. That's a potential direction the promise could go. And then what's the other one? Nahor. Promise could go through Nahor. We'll see. But it almost certainly can't go through Abram. He doesn't have any kids. So the Bible is emphasizing right here. Terah took Abram his son, Lot his son Haran, his grandson and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So, there we go. So we're tracing this Toledote. It's pointing us. It's tracking. It's this little tracker device. And we're like, this family. So there you go. Who is Abram? He's a descendant of Shem. He's eligible to be the carrier of the promise. Unfortunately, he doesn't have any kids. And this promise is dependent on children. So this is where the tension is built up in the story, right? This is where we've got the conflict. If you know good storytelling, we've got a problem here that it's lining up here, that we've got a really old man who hasn't been able to have kids and somehow the promise has to find its way through here. So, question number two. So Abram is just a descendant of Shem. That's the answer to question number one. Who is Abram? He's a descendant of Shem. Potentially the route that the promise could go through. So God is being consistent in his promise. It's going to come through Shem. Let's point out Abram. Number two, why does God pick him? Here's the answer I have. God wanted to. We don't have anywhere where it gives a clear indication of any qualifications that Abram has other than it's impossible for it to happen in any sort of worldly sense through him. If God is going to pick Abram, he's going to have to do it entirely himself. Abram cannot contribute or help at all. So why does God pick him? Not because he's particularly godly. Joshua 24.2 tells us that he and his family served other gods. So he is not a worshiper of the one true God, at least not exclusively. He's a pagan from a family of pagans, living in a pagan land. So God's not picking him because he's got spiritual credentials, not picking him because he's young and vigorous and could have a lot of kids. No, he's old. He's old. He's too small to conquer a big land like Canaan. It is going to be utterly impossible for for Abram to be the one through whom the seed of promise passes through. And that might be exactly why God picks him, is because he's going to get full glory out of accomplishing this thing. So it's not the credentials that Abram brings to the table. It's not that he has got anything going for him by which God would go yes. It's not like God's collecting resumes on Indeed.com and then doing some interviews and picking the best candidate. He just decides, no, I'm going to take my whole world plan, and I already said it's going to be a descendant of Shem, you. Yeah, you. You're my guy. Let's go. All, all of my plan is going to funnel through you. You think of an hourglass, right? All this sand has to go through this one little thing, and then it's going to go out to everybody. And that's exactly what's happening. God in the narrative is taking his big, massive, eternal plan, and he is funneling it all through a couple that's 75 and 65. That's bringing nothing to the table. And then it's going to go out and be a blessing to all the nations. This is at the very center of the funnel. Only one grain of a sand can come through at a time. Only one couple is now the carrier of all of God's redemptive plan for the world for eternity. So why does God pick him? God just simply decides, you're my guy. I'm going with you. And God attaches himself to Abram in a really beautiful and glorious way. So here we go. Now we can kind of get into the meat of our text here. Question number three, what does God promise? Look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. So, here we go. God just shows up right here. Chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing." I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of God's redemptive plan is going to come through you, Abram, and I have uh, some things I need you to do. And God just says, look at how many times he says, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. This whole thing rides entirely on the will of God, and he is declaring, I have willed it, so let's go. Let's do this thing. There's two commands with three promises under each of the commands, okay? So command number one is the very first words that Abram hears, go. That's in the imperative form. Go. Now Abraham said to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go. I have promises that will undergird your obedience. Your obedience is going to be based on promises. You're not earning this. I'm already granting it to you. But the fact that you're receiving these promises is going to be demonstrated by the fruitfulness of your obedience. You're going to go, right? And look at the call. Go from your country. So however you're identifying as a Babylon, you're no longer to identify as a Babylonian anymore. Go from your kindred, your own little community. You're no longer identified by that anymore. You're going to leave there. And from your father's house. Leave father and mother, Abram, and follow me from all of the things that you identify with and you're going to go all in on a promise you can't see with a God that you don't know very well. You're going to lose everything you know and see for something you don't know very well and can't see. Let's go. Here's my promise. Doesn't even tell him where he's going to go, right? Go to a country that I'm going to show you. Just, well, wait a minute and you kind of go, if you're abram you'd kind of want to go well, let's 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 get zillow out let's kind of see what houses are available where are you want us to go we got to calculate the cost of living i'm going to have to do you know like none of that god doesn't give him any of that so abram is just minding his own business doing what 70 year old 75 year old men do probably getting up early getting with some of his buddies at mcdonald's getting some coffee talking about the good old days and what's wrong with the country right what 75-year-old men do. He's just sitting at McDonald's doing that, and then all of a sudden he's headed home from coffee and feeling a little bit better and a little bit worse at the same time from hanging out with his friends. And God just, you, all right, let's uh, pack your stuff. In fact, don't pack very much of it because we're we're going. Um, And I am promising to do these things. And we've got from his country, you're not to identify with your country anymore. Your larger social community, You live in Rapid City, you live in Black Hills, you're not to identify with that anymore. And your immediate family, the hopes and dreams and expectations of your family, those are gone. Those are done. You leave your father's house. You're not under that obligation anymore. You're going to disappoint them. You're going to change the direction of the family. Your identity is different now. And here's why. Because of what I'm going to do, what I'm going to promise you. And he gives three big promises to undergird this command. Number one, in verse two, I will make of you a great nation. So this is, this is bigger than just I'm going to make you a great people. Like you're going to have a lot of kids and you're going to be sort of significant. No, you're going to be a nation, like a geopolitical nation with structure and borders and land. It's a big promise. I will make you a great nation. 75-year-old man is going to become a great nation. More than just children, a geopolitical nation state. Promise number two, God says, I will bless you. And This is almost always in the context here tied with prosperity, fertility, and protection. So again, he's just talking about making them a great nation. And by blessing here, he's talking about uh, your nation is going to be very successful. It's going to be, you're going to be prosperous. You're going to have fertility. You're going to have protection. Those are the things that you would most tie with the blessing of God at this time. And God says, I'm going to give that to you. You're going to do well as a nation. You're going to do well as a people. uh, uh, Promise number three, make your name great. You will be remembered, Abram. 4,000 years from now, there will be a group of people that are gathered on the other side of the planet who are going to talk about you and what I have done with and through you. And here we are. I will make your name great. Your name, Abram, will be remembered. Your legacy will far outlive you. I'm going to do things far beyond what you have accomplished. I'm going to accomplish some things for you. And then command number two is this. So that you will be a blessing. Now that sounds like an indicative that flows out of the promises, but actually in Hebrew it's a command. You will be a blessing, Abram. The whole point of these promises is not just to bless you. That's true. But you have a command to be a blessing. So you're going to go into a foreign land, you're going to have a lot of conflicts, and your orientation will always be towards blessing them. That's what your purpose is, Abram, is not to fight for me against them, but to be a blessing to them. I have judged them, I have scattered them, and you are the conduit by which I'm going to gather them back up and give them a blessing. That's your orientation, not self-defense, not your own prosperity. You let me worry about that. Your job is to seek ways to be a blessing to the nations. You will be a blessing to the nations. That's a command. That's his call. And that is undergirded with three more promises, which says this. I will bless those who bless you. God will tie himself so closely with Abram that it will be a blessing to for Abram will be something that God himself receives as a compliment on himself. He so ties himself to Abram that to bless Abraham is to bless God. God is going to take personal anything that happens to to Abram. We see that going to play out here in a little bit. Of those who recognize that Abram is God's chosen instrument and honor and respect and support that, God blesses them. But the second promise is to him who dishonors you, I will curse. Not just those who curse you, but even those who just simply dishonor you. Those who just kind of blow you off, Abram. Yeah, I'm taking that personal too, and I'm going to avenge it. Not just those who have actively, aggressively, but even those that just disrespect you. I will put a curse on them. God is so identifying himself with Abram that whatever happens to Abram, he takes personally, and he'll respond as if it happens to him himself. It's kind of a union, right? This union that Abram is going to have with God. It says later that we, he's called the friend of God. You pick on my friend, you pick on me, right? You bless my friend, you, I bless you. So God is uniting himself, binding himself to Abram, and Abram hasn't done anything yet. The two promises, I will bless those who bless you, I will dishonor those who curse you, and then promise number three, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God assures Abram that the judgment and fracture of humanity at Babel will be remedied through him. Seven times in this short nine verses, God says, I will. This is going to be my work through you, and you just get to enjoy the ride. I'm calling you to do two things based on these promises. Go, disconnect from all the other things that you identify with. You identified with a promise that you don't know, that you can't see, and you're going a place that I haven't told you yet where to go. And the reason you're going is to be a blessing to the nations. That's your goal. That's your call. That's what I have made you for, and I am binding myself to you, Abram, no matter what happens. In your lifetime, I am bound to you. I will protect you. I will bless you. I will look out for you, and I will accomplish my will for you. Do you trust me? Will you obey me? Will you worship me? Which we then come to the next, what, six verses or so. And we ask the question, how does Abram respond? He's just had this avalanche thrown on him, right? I mean, he, 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 this would be such a lot to take in in a short period of time. That's a lot in three verses that God has laid on him, blessed him with these guarantees before he has done anything. He's not qualified for any of them. He hasn't been worshiping God. And yet God chose him. And just avalanches him with all of these promises and these two simple commands that really aren't so simple, are they? So how does Abram respond? Obedient, worshipful trust. Obedient, worshipful trust. Let's read those verses and we'll unpack them. In verse 4, this is phenomenal. So, just, just think. Just imagine you're in his shoes. You've just heard this, right? He's a normal guy. Made of the same stuff you and I are made of. Same concerns, same thoughts. So he just hears all this. Just think how maybe you would respond in this moment. Maybe I shouldn't have had <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have had the hash browns at McDonald's. I'm starting to hear things. Verse 4 So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai and his wife, and Lot, his brother, his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to a land of Canaan. And when they came to the land of Canaan, God, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To you, to your offspring, I will give this land. So now he finally told, tells him, This one, this one you're standing on. So it's not till he actually like completes his obedience that then God gives him the answer, which just... Just a little pro tip on walking with God. He does that a lot. <laughs> you don't always know until after you've obeyed what the point was. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there, he moved to the hill country to the east of, at Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Okay, let's unpack this. How does Abram respond? Very simply, it's obedient, worshipful trust. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. Underneath that simple explanation, let's just point out some things. So, no, no offense to God, but this is bonkers. This is crazy. This, this, is, this is silly. This is ridiculous. This is insane. This is impossible. This is an impossible thing that God has just put on him. A 75-year-old and a 65-year-old childless pagan couple, couple are God's choice to save the world through having kids. This is insane. It's crazy. There are three things this couple absolutely cannot do. Number one, have kids. Number two, take over a land filled with Canaanites. Number three, Meaningful in, meaningfully impact all the families of the earth that are scattered everywhere. There are three things they cannot do. And God is calling them to do those things And he will do them. And he, the, Abram just believes him and acts, moves, obeys. Abram responds, he doesn't come to God with going, I've got some questions. I've got some doubts. Let me bring the medical records for me and my wife. This isn't going to happen. right? No quibbling that we know of. God, here's my budget. I can't afford this. Math doesn't check out. Somebody else is probably more qualified for this. Nope, none of that from Abram. Verse 4, So Abram went as the Lord had told him, giving up everything he can see to chase down the promises that he can't see. Sometimes we make life with God very complicated. This was a complicated plan God just laid out before Abram, but the response was simple. Trust me. Do what I ask you to do. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2 defines faith this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old, speaking of Abram, received their commendation. There were promises they couldn't see. And they cashed out what they could see to buy up what they could not see. It's called faith. Abram is called to leave everything he sees and knows and can count to receive what he cannot see, what he does not know, and what he cannot count. And his answer to the word of God is, yep, packing up right now. I'm on my way. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. It just continues to emphasize his age. Like, this is not what 75-year-old men usually do. He's called an Ur, according to many different texts speak of him leaving Ur. Some speak of him leaving Haran. I think that's just, that's not a contradiction in the scriptures. That's just to say this was a process. This took a little bit of time for him to pull off, to disentangle himself and get himself where God wanted him to do. So this was not a quick obedience in one day. This is years of working himself in obedience to God. He didn't get there overnight. He had to work his way there. He had to disentangle himself, and that was a bit of a process. Verse five, Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother, and their possessions that they gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. That's fascinating, that word, the people they acquired. Some people think that that maybe is referring to slaves that he owned, but the word for people there is the word souls. It's a far more intimate and valuable term. And it's never used of slaves in Hebrew at all. So likely this is converts. Abram has been talking about this God and this promise. And there's been some people that have believed it with him. So this is not him coercing a bunch of slaves to go with him. The way the language is constructed is that, people that these are people who are persuaded that, yes, Abram did receive a call from God and we'd like to join him in the quest that God has given him. So that's just a fascinating thing there. That That's probably converts, souls, not slaves, but souls that have been persuaded of Abram's call and are joining him in this caravan to a new land, to a promise from a strange God. And they sent out to go to Canaan, verse five. And when they came to the land of Canaan, if you're the original readers, this should send off alarm bells. Well, not Canaan, don't go to Canaan, like literally go anywhere but Canaan. That's the cursed people. Like go find some land in a nice, safe suburb where you can have some land and you can build a house and you can have peace. Don't go to the hard part of the earth. Don't go to the wicked place. That's where the Canaanites are. They're cursed. And that's exactly where the promise lies, is in the middle of these cursed Canaanites. So you could just see alarm bells, no, not the Canaanites. Verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. It just continues to emphasize that. God has sent him into the teeth of the beast. He sent him into the caves of Al-Qaeda. I mean, this is, this is, my promised land is right there. Right there in the most dangerous place of the people I've already cursed. Yep, sending you right into conflict. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. (laughs) Not this land. Don't give me this land. Do you know how much work it's going to be to get this land? This is yours. I'm giving it to you. So again, just continuing to expect trust from Abram. God is calling and sending him into the very heart of evil. Calling him from comfort, security, predictability to receive God's blessing and promise in the middle of wickedness. Friends, God calls his people out of the world always to send them back into the world for the sake of the world. He's already setting in the course of faith. The course of walking with him is already being set here in Abram, called out of the world in order to go and be a blessing back into that same world, not of it, but in it. A world of a life of worldly safety, world security, distance, predictability is not the life of faith that God promises. Abram does not get any of those things. He gets a promise he does get a promise, I guess, in some sense, that God will protect him. But that's not something that he's going to be able to calculate in worldly terms. This Oak of Mora is fascinating. It literally means teacher. Almost assuredly, this is a place of temple worship and inst- or, uh, pagan worship and instruction. So God sends him to the place that's known for instruction in wickedness and says, Right here, this is your land. This is going right into the middle of the mosque and go, Right here, I want my worship here. And you're going to bring it, you're going to bring it here. So right here at the Ocamora, this, this revered place of pagan worship and instruction, right there in the darkest demonic place, I'm giving you this land. And God doesn't tell him at first, but then once he's there, says, hey, if God would have told him at the beginning where he was sending him, Abram might not have wanted to go. It's not until he gets there that he then goes, right here, this spot. I'm going to give this land to you. This Canaanite land is going to be yours. And that's true with us, right? If, God, if you look back on your life and the decisions that God has had you make, if He'd have told you what it was going to cost, you might not have done it. But now you look back and you see His faithfulness, right? We all have stories like that. Verse seven: So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. That's audacious—an altar to the one true God in the midst of pagan instruction. The oaks of Moray is going to be a place of the worship of the one true God. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Another altar he builds. And then Abram journeyed on, still towards the Negev. And so Abram is continuing to be this nomad who goes and just spreads sort of the worship of God. So think of Abram's response here. He pitches a tent, but he builds an altar. That's significant. That's significant. That's not by accident. When God says, this is your land, he doesn't start clearing it for the foundation of a house. He pitches his tent and goes, I'm going to put a foundation for an altar. My renown and success in the land is not nearly as important as this being a land that's dedicated to the worship of God. I'm temporary. Worship of God is to be permanent here. So his priority is not to all of a sudden get the comfort set up of going, here's our land, let's... Let's start seeding the ground. Let's start figuring out where the dog's going to live. It's going first and foremost, we need to set up a permanent structure for the worship of God. This is going to be a place that's marked by the worship of God. So he pitches tents temporarily. He's temporary. He's not going to invest in this worldly sense there. He's going to live in a tent, and he's going to let the place be marked by the worship of God. That's what's permanent to him. His resources, you're going to see this again and again, his resources are not going to be in building his own greatness, but in the worship of God. The worship of God is going to be the priority of Abraham. He's not always going to get it right, but we see right here that he is considering himself a nomad and this place as a place of worship. His priority is the public worship of God in this place, not his own comfort, security, and status. He trusts God for that. As long as I'm worshiping God, I can live in a tent and be content. I don't need a big mansion. I don't need to clear a big ground for this. I can live temporarily as a nomad in this world as long as God is getting the worship he deserves here. He's tying his identity to the worship of God, not the comforts of this world. He pitches a tent for himself, but builds altars for God. He embraces that he's going to be a nomad in the world. His lasting legacy will be worship, not possessions. Abram refuses to invest in temporary realities. And the question, I guess, that Abraham confronts us with here is that, are we like that? Do you have a tent, so to speak, in terms of your worldly investments and an altar built for eternity in terms of where you're investing yourself? Are you invested in the corporate worship of God or the temporary comforts of your own life? Look at your stuff, your calendar, your budget. Does it look like a simple nomadic, I'm just passing through here kind of life? with a massive, extravagant, lasting investment in that which lasts forever, which is the worship of God. Just would be something to consider. So these nine verses. The answers to these four questions. God sets the train tracks for the rest of the Bible that it will run on. The rest of the train of God's redemption runs on the tracks set here in these nine verses. Who is Abram? He's a descendant of Shem. Why'd God pick him? Because uh, he wanted to. What does he promise him? unbelievable blessing so that he would be a blessing and how does abram respond to receiving the promise obedient worshipful trust for the rest of his life we see really a gospel shape taking place here that this is how the plan of god is going to work this is how he's going to interact with individuals really in in many ways from here on out it's really gospel shaped for thousands of years this is going to be the trajectory. This is going to be the response that he's looking for in people. This is going to be, he's going to, he's going to continue to be a God that makes promises and keeps them and asks people, those who will trust in his promises over all things will get to receive the blessings. It's those who trust in the promise that will get the rewards. And this is very gospel shaped. Let me show you this in the book of Matthew. Just thinking of this, how God's call works what the response God's looking for and the blessing that kind of comes out of it. And now look at the Gospel of Matthew. Let's fast forward 2,000 some years and just see if God hasn't been somewhat consistent here, that there isn't a gospel shape to this call of Abram. Let me just show you four quick verses. Matthew 1.1, beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Here it is. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, what? The son of Abraham the fulfillment of the promise <laughs> through your offspring all the world will be blessed. Matthew starts there with a genealogy echoing back to Genesis, going God has promised that he is going to bring a seed of a woman through genealogy and guess who qualifies? Guess who is that seed? And I need you to know that that Genesis 12:1 through 9 promise is Jesus. Look at Matthew 4:19, God the God man Jesus himself comes. And let's notice that he calls people exactly the way God called Abram. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Let's go, right? Isn't that what God did to Abram? All right, go, and I'll show you. And I got promises. And Jesus is, follow me. Doesn't tell him where he's going. Doesn't tell him what all following him looks like. He's gonna unpack that as they go. And I will make you fishers of men, a promise, right? You, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. That sounds a whole lot like Go to a land I won't show you, or I will show you, and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Very similar language. Same God calling the same kind of response from people. And the crazy thing is, is that Abram goes. The crazy thing is, is that people go when they see Jesus, right? They left their nets and they followed him, right? Like Abram. It's faith like Abram to the promise and call of God. Let's go to Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Does that not sound like leave your land and your family and your country and go to a land that I show you? The same God is calling people to the same kind of response of trust. If you're going to come after me, Abram, you're going to have to leave Ur. You're going to have to sell that nice house. You're going to have to leave your family. You're going to have to leave the expectations of other people. And you're gonna to have to just go all in on me. And Jesus says the same thing. If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then look at this, the very last verses in the book of Matthew. Matthew twenty eight, nineteen through twenty. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What was Abram meant to be? A blessing to the nations. So it starts with Go, be a blessing to the nations. Then Jesus, when he ascends, looks at the people who have been trusting him in the promise and he says, Go, be a blessing to the nations. It's the same call. It's the same call. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching you to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. This is just like the Abrahamic call. Being a Christian is just like the Abrahamic call. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Look at this. This is what Paul says. This is, I'm not making up these connections. This is exactly what Paul says in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Look at this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abram, Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he's speaking about the work of Christ, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, do you see how this is huge? Genesis twelve one through nine, and he is a model for us of what God is looking like, what the gospel announcement is like. You will be a blessing to the nations. Paul himself is saying that God preached the gospel to Abram, the same gospel that you and I received for salvation, and it requires the same response as Abram. So, here's what's awesome. The ultimate, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, but then also, according to this text, you are too, if you're trusting in Christ. If you have faith like Abraham in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that promise from 4,000 years ago is being worked out in you. I'm guessing there aren't very many ethnic Jews in here, which means that God was a blessing to the nations. Abraham accomplished God, through Abram, accomplished it. And the fact that we're sitting here on the other side of the world worshiping Jesus is that God has fulfilled his promise and you're part of it. You're part of that blessing that God promised. You're part of the recipients of the blessing through Abraham. The promise is being fulfilled right now in you and by God's grace through you. God is sending you into the world, into the Canaan's of our neighborhood, of our city, He might send some of you to the Canaan's around the world. There might be some of our kids here that we send to Afghanistan to be missionaries and praise God for it. This is the way, this is the way that this works. Three questions and I'm done. Do you trust the God who makes and keeps, as we see in the Gospels, big promises? Do you trust him? Number two, will you obey the God who makes and keeps big promises? And will you worship the God who makes and keeps big promises? Will you invest yourself, find your identity in something you can't see? That's what makes the world really take notice, is people that are like, you're making the weirdest calculations. This doesn't make sense. You should be buying a bigger thing, or you should be doing a different thing. You should be preserving this. You should be doing this. Why are you raising your kids like that? Because I do a totally different calculation i am called by god to trust him and his promises not what i see but what he has promised and i am called to obey i'm not called to just sit here and just go promises are great i don't have to do anything no they are to motivate us not because we earn them but because we treasure them we believe them by our obedience and are we going to be invested in worship or are we going to be invested in worship plus something else So if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to look at the amazing story of Scripture and of human history that God has worked out a plan over thousands of years. No one could make this up. No one could orchestrate this. God himself must be behind it because it matches up too cleanly. He's accomplished it. And the promise is extended to you. Go from your life of sin to a land that I will show you through the means of Jesus Christ. Repent of those things that you're putting your trust in. Put it all in Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promises. And there's so many more promises still to come. And they're guaranteed through the God that we trust and obey and worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together and for this massive story. What an incredible passage. And uh, now we're going to move from Google Earth View to Street View as we spend 38 chapters watching just four generations of this family. Uh, What a glorious thing that you would set your affections on Abram and he did not deserve it, did not earn it, was not qualified, could not do it, and yet you chose him to be your blessed instrument. And God, we're in that same category. If we do not deserve you, our worship is not clean and pure. We rebel against you, we sin against you, and yet you have chosen to set your affections upon us. And so God, I pray that we would receive that by faith through Jesus Christ. I pray that you would speak to the hearts of people here. If they recognize that they're on the outside of this promise looking in, I pray that they would take the invitation to to go from their land, go from their life and trust in the promises of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And those of us that claim to be followers of Christ, I pray that we would evaluate our own hearts and minds to see if we're really walking out what the scriptures say about walking with you and following you. And God, help us to find great joy in detaching ourselves from the things we can see and uh, grabbing and buying up more of things we can't see. God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.